Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so today's episode is brought to you by Zencaster. And I remember back in the day where I was looking at putting together Zencaster, I was looking for a solution that would really help me in putting things together. And essentially, this is what allowed me to bring deal makers to life. I mean, basically, Zencaster, what it is, is an all-in-one solution where you just send the link to the person that you're looking to interview. Essentially, they would plug in their computer with their video, with the audio, and then basically you are good to go. You would just piece everything together, give it to your audio engineer, or even edit it yourself, and you are off to the races. Now, if you're looking at getting into podcasting, you should definitely check Zencaster out. And you could also get a 30% discount. And this is a discount code that you will be able to redeem by going into Zen, and that is csnzebraen.ai forward slash dealmakers and then number zero. And lastly, you know, I was very much blown away when I found out that investing in wine has been one of the best kept secrets amongst the ultra wealthy. And this is now not the case anymore. You know, I came across this solution, which is called VinoVest, and they are a great, great solution that allows you to diversify investing by implementing or including wines into your portfolio. I mean, take a look at this. Wine has one third of the volatility of the stock market, and yet it has outperformed the global equities market over the past 30 years with 10.6% annualized revenues. So it's a really good way to diversify your portfolio. And you could also get two months of free investing by just going into the Send and that is csnzebraen.ai forward slash dealmakers. And by just going there, you will be able to redeem your discount. Alrighty, hello everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we're going to be talking to a founder that has done it a few times building, scaling, financing, exiting. We're going to be talking about running out of money, landing your first customer. I mean, the, the whole thing. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Duncan McIntyre. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Alejandro. Love what you're doing. Love your platform and uh, appreciate you having me on. So originally from Massachusetts, one of four kids. So tell us about life growing up. Uh, look, very. we were very fortunate. Great, great family, super close family. Definitely uh, father's a cancer doctor, got a lot of encouragement to yeah, pursue what I enjoyed and what came naturally and generally had a wonderful childhood. And how, how did you get, you know, that law for perhaps finance and, and the combination with energy? I think by default, I was never very good at foreign languages or chemistry, but math came easy to me. And I uh, loved the idea of investing and um, picking companies and businesses that I thought would be successful and uh, uh, did a tiny bit of it with my father when I was in high school and definitely had the bug for sort of career in finance in the early days. Now, you went to Babson. So Babson is known for being very entrepreneurial as a school. Do you think that that was the time where you planted the seed that one day you were going to start your own thing? 
I think I went back and forth. I loved the entrepreneur entrepreneurship track at Babson, being able to learn about, you know, marketing and and finance and accounting and things that are the building blocks for running a business. But by the time I left Babson, a professor basically warned me, don't go start a business unless you figured out a problem in a market and you really have a good way to fix it. And I ended up joining an investment bank, getting a ton of training, learning a lot about uh, the energy industry. And I think the uh, the timing was good because renewable energy was starting to emerge as a uh, sort of new technology. There was a, a vision and a promise for a sort of cleaner, a cleaner system. And to me, that seemed uh, exciting and something, you know, worthy of being part of. So I think I came back to entrepreneurship maybe five or six years into my career when I thought I had a good enough idea. Now, it is true. I mean, one, one of the things I come across a lot is that some of the best entrepreneurs, they have a background either in consulting or the investment side, you know, as private equity or venture capital or investment banking. So investment banking, what kind of, how, how do you think it shaped you up and also the way that you're thinking towards uh, being a solid operator? Well, I think it gave me some grounding in what successful businesses look like and what investors look for and uh, uh, are able to attribute value to. It gave me a, a sense for looking at a bunch of companies. We sold mining businesses and energy services companies and getting a flavor for you know, what recurring revenue means, what it costs to acquire a customer, how a product is positioned in a market. You know, uh, the, the, the research and the diligence around how a market is expected to grow or not grow, and then looking at the companies and how they're positioned to capture that growth. So I think from a macro standpoint, banking was great training. And then uh, I did spend a number of years in venture capital investing in startups and uh, got different training about how to look at entrepreneurs and assess their backgrounds and whether they were well suited to, you know, to be successful in what they were explaining their, you know, their, uh, their business plans to be. And what was that point where Altanex really came knocking, you know, the idea of your first business and how did you go about really executing and bringing it to life? Sure. You know, my background was was in energy and energy markets. And uh, I uh, I was one of three founders in Altenex. My two partners had different backgrounds. One of them came from sort of corporate strategy and marketing, and the other one came from financial technologies and building software. And um, it was, I think, the, the, the you know, cumulative nature of our, our, our backgrounds. They thought about building an exchange that was automated. And I thought about energy services and the needing to, the need to sort of hold the hands of these big corporations and really navigate the inner workings of how they buy power and how that meshed up with the wholesale markets. And so it was those conversations that led to the, you know, the belief that uh, Procter & Gamble and Microsoft and Home Depot all wanted to buy renewable energy, but the market didn't have good mechanisms to sell it to them. And and that was the the birth of sort of a new product, which was the virtual power purchase agreement. Now let's talk about then about Altanex. What ended up being the business model? Yeah, so uh, it was uh, a marketplace. So we were paid based on transactions, and you know a traditional marketplace 
is more about facilitating buyers and sellers in matching up. And we did do that. That is how we were paid. But uh, we represented the buy side and the buyers in this market needed a lot of handholding and a lot of sort of consultative engagement as well as data and analytics. So it was about building a data business with a service layer and uh, using that as sort of the, the leading tool to enable transactions. Now, in that regard, I mean, you guys raised a little bit of money. So how much did you raise for this company? We raised a little less than $3 million, not a ton of money. But as a services business, we were able to generate you know, some real revenue to offset costs fairly early on in, in the business's evolution. Uh, and that helped us get to profitability. And what does it look like? Because now, obviously, raising from investors, you know, they like the platform-based type of stuff. I mean, was it challenging to raise money for a company like this? It was. I think Altenex was not a traditional sort of institutional investor play. You know, it's hard to, it was hard to point at core, our core IP. There wasn't the technology. We were a, a services business. Um, and so I think we had better luck with angels who believed in the vision and were comfortable taking a flyer on, on a team and a market thesis that they thought was, uh, they thought was exciting. Now, the company ended up being acquired, uh, and it was a really good acquisition. I mean, first company, you know, that you create, first company that exits. I mean, that's not really the norm. So how did the acquisition come about? Tell us about it. So about a year before the acquisition, we were approached by NRG, and at the time, they were building the utility of the future. The vision was to be the, the renewable energy sort of utility under David Crane. And it's a vision that we were very aligned with. Uh, so we were really approached. Um, NRG ended up uh, making a big investment, primary capital for the balance sheet and secondary. Um, so there was a partial liquidity event that was sort of, uh, they came knocking and we entertained it and we thought the marriage made sense. About uh, six months later, the the NRG's board had, uh, really shifted their thesis and gone in a little bit of a different direction. And we uh, determined they wouldn't be the right partner to you know, grow the business to the next level. And so we, we got an investment bank involved, ex explored options, and we spoke with you know, a number of uh, you know, uh, traditional public companies that were looking to be in this space. And we had a good amount of interest, but ultimately Edison International had a Plate had a position in renewables already. They were eager to build a deregulated service business um, that had sort of multiple strategies, and renewables was one of those strategies. And so um, uh, they had the right team, the right strategy, the right timing, and it was a good fit. Now, so the terms of the acquisition, they were eventually announced, and there was a hundred million of an acquisition. You know, and obviously, probably other stuff you know, involved as well, but a hundred million was announced and and I'm wondering like what was that what was that day like where you guys, you know, signed the papers, the agreements? It was uh uh it was ex it was exciting to become part of a big business that valued the platform that we'd built and they had a, a vision for how we could continue building it and expand into some new markets, create some new products. Uh yeah, but certainly you know, coming from a bootstrap startup and the tough early days that every entrepreneur has experienced 
to uh, an exit was uh, was definitely um, fulfilling the vision we had had for the company. And I think that when you go through an acquisition, it also gives you more visibility into the journey of being an entrepreneur. I mean, being able to see the full cycle. So how how is that for you now? Like giving giving you that visibility on on what does it look like from going to idea to launch to building to racing to scaling to exit. I mean, how is that for you? Yeah, I mean, the first time you're you're making it up as you go, right? We certainly made plenty of mistakes, but I think we tried to work smart, listen to the cues from the market, really listen to our customers, and make sure the the product fit was uh, was there, and the product was priced and structured in a way that was receptive to the vast majority of the market. And then, you know, building the team and the systems and processes and the technology backbone to actually execute is a whole nother, you know, is a whole nother piece. And so as you grow, you know, I think I learned the hard way that I had to fire myself from jobs and take on different roles. As the team grew, the business grew, our customer account grew. It's definitely helped me, I think, do things a little differently the second time around. Now, let's talk about the second time around. Let's talk about Highland Electric Fleet. So at what point does the idea come to mind? And uh, I mean, at this point, you were already in Edison. Uh, I mean, you lasted in Edison for for about a year, uh, close to a year, doing what they call the vesting and resting. But in this case for you, I mean, how did the idea, you know, come to mind? And, and why did you think it made sense to to really leave everything behind and go for it? Yeah, I, I spent maybe a little closer to two years with Edison running the the business. But Edison, uh, you know, Southern California utility company, and I think uh, the EV movement was more meaningfully kicked off in California, at least in, in the U.S., than any other state. And so um, there were I was brought into conversations with uh, electric vehicle companies, with the challenge of electrifying big depots, you know, new service. The utilities used to new service being half a megawatt or, you know. 100 kilowatts, you know, the idea of 10 megawatts into a a big depot is daunting. And so there's a lot of strategy and a lot of work that's got to be done to do that in the right way. And uh, that was really the start was call it uh, late 2016, early 2017. And for me, it looked like the renewable energy market did a decade before. You know, big wind farms, big solar farms had the promise of delivering power, clean power into the markets, but utilities weren't well suited uh, at the time anyways, to take on development risk, take on technology risk. You know, they didn't always have the tax appetite to monetize tax credits. And uh, ultimately, uh, you know, they, they developers, renewable developers drove the market and utilities were great at signing power purchase agreements. And to me, fleet electrification felt like it had a lot of similarities. It's hard for a, you know, a city transportation director to know how to navigate electrifying a depot, picking the right products, taking technology risk, and, and then they have to come up with the capital, which is two or three times more than what it costs to buy a diesel bus or a diesel truck. And so for, for me, it felt really right for managed solutions that it bundled and packaged the capital and the services to make it affordable and simple and um, less risky for uh, for municipal leaders to go electric. 
Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, then let's talk about the, uh, the way that you guys make money. I mean, what does that model look like? Sure. So we put all the equipment on the ground. That's the vehicles and all the charging infrastructure, the charging stations themselves. So very capital intensive. Uh, our projects are capital intensive up front. Highland foots the bill for all of that. And then we effectively deliver fully fueled vehicles every morning, every afternoon, based on the duty cycles of the fleet we're serving. So we 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 sign effectively performance-based contracts that look a little like an energy services agreement where um, we use our equipment and the services we provide, managing the charging, quarterbacking uh, spare parts, doing some training of the you know existing staff, the municipal staff on how to operate the vehicles. And then we charge by the mile. So the full package, the equipment and the services, including the electricity, we might charge $3 a mile or $4 a mile. And so then if uh, you know the customer's driving the vehicle 10,000 miles in a year at $3 a mile, we'll earn $30,000 for that year. Uh, and our contracts tend to be 12 years, 15 years in length. So a little bit like a renewable energy contract, high upfront cost, lower and predictable operating costs, um, but some execution risk mixed in. And um, that that's how we make money. Okay. And now in, in, in this case, how do you guys go about capitalizing the business? We've raised a little over a quarter of a billion dollars from two institutional investors. And uh, the flavor of the capital is infrastructure capital. Um, but uh, the, the, the bottom line is we have equity investors and we have access to debt that we can put at the project level. And that capital is you know, backed by the equipment and the contracts with our municipal customers. And it's the the intersection of that equipment and the contracts that 
you know, effectively, uh, you know, creates the underwriting comfort for the way we raised money. Now, in this case, you know, like, why did you go after private equity firms versus going after venture capital firms or high networks? I mean, why private equity? Yeah. So, uh, you know, our, 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 the bulk of our capital is uh, from a private equity firm that really focuses on sustainable infrastructure. So I think traditional private equity uh, uh, cost of capital is probably a little higher than the cost of capital we were seeking. Um, infrastructure investors like long-term contracts, they like assets that uh, effectively backstop the position. And so, you know, we, we definitely looked around at all the different investors and sources of capital. Uh, we had a lot of interest. The fleet electrification is a category that I think in the last year and a half has has basically had more interest from the investment community. But we found partners that both uh, know the automotive manufacturing space really well, and they could help us navigate uh, the relationships as well as understand technologies. And then also a sustainable infrastructure investor uh, called Vision Ridge, who has just a really smart team and a tremendous amount of experience investing in EV charging and transportation and sort of the sustainable side of transportation. So they were able to dig deep and really quickly understand the flavor of, uh, of product and service we were bringing to the market and um, uh, do the underwriting to get comfortable with how we were making money and how we were investing in projects. So that was sort of how we landed on our uh, our investors. Now, when you're going after money uh, and, and you're raising capital, I mean, if you're going after venture capital, people, they, they typically invest in people. I mean, it's very early. Private equity, they invest more in numbers. So, and the people that are listening are probably very familiar with the venture route, you know, of raising that type of capital, but maybe not so much with the private equity route and how you raise capital from private equity firms. What does that process look like and, and how is that different from the VC route itself? Sure. I think our investors definitely invested in both the people, right? The team, me and the other folks on the Highland team that were part of the business at the time. But they also looked at um, our pipeline and the contracts that we that we had at the time. You know, there's one contract in particular that was meaningful. And we had been awarded via public procurement a contract with Montgomery County Public Schools in Maryland. And that was a contract to convert uh, basically a quarter of the school bus fleet to all electric under a 16-year contract. And so the, you know, the total revenue associated with that contract was a little over $170 million. And so we had substantial uh, sort of contracted revenue. Uh, or awarded revenue that was going under contract when we were closing our round. And I think the traction in the market was definitely one component around uh, getting investors like infrastructure investors, as opposed to sort of just straight venture investors that invest more in a team and an idea. But But having said that, the market, I think, was still early. So the the team side of it uh, was not um, an insignificant piece is is my belief. And in this case, I mean, it's it's pretty amazing the way that you guys uh, went about raising the money because 
literally it took like almost no time. I mean, I mean, uh, like two or three years to raise. How much have you guys raised to date? I mean, it's it's quite a big amount. Two hundred and fifty-three million. Is that right? That's correct. Yes, and we we raised a couple million dollars um, in the first two years, uh, which which is capital that came from a couple angel investors as well as from me. Uh, but you know, I think the first year was all about proving the business model, getting our first customer. The second year was about scaling, building a pipeline, uh, acquiring a second customer, a third customer, building a presence in more markets. And, and after those two sort of inflection points were realized, we had the ability to go raise a lot more money. And, uh, I think, I think found, you know, the right partners and at the right time to, you know, build a big business in a market that, uh, we all believe is, is, uh, is growing quickly and will continue to grow quickly. Nice. Now imagine if you go, if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision and mission of Highland is fully realized, what does that world look like? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, our vision is to be the largest, most profitable provider of fleet electrification services to municipalities and governments. You know, it's the, it's the public sector that we seek to serve as a company. And we're creating, you know, the skills and the discipline to really address that market need in a meaningful way. Um, I think that it's going to take time. There's a lot of mass market education that has to happen. People have to get comfortable that these vehicles work, that, you know, they uh, they will work after the warranties are completed on the equipment. Um, they have to get comfortable with a different type of, uh, of uh, transaction. And, you know, those things will take some time. But, you know, we think over the next four or five years, there's going to be a meaningful shift, you know, driven by both grassroots efforts as well as local interest. And politicians that you know uh, increasingly have sustainability and clean air as a cornerstone of their platform, and so you know uh, the the vision is, yeah, a bulk of the market is really seeking electrification solutions, and we're not gonna we're not gonna win uh, every time we try to you know deliver for a customer. We'll we'll lose to competitors and to you know cities that want to do it on their own. But um, I think our value proposition is really strong, and um, we'll uh, we'll win uh, a lion's share of the work that we go after. And so that's definitely my vision: is that the market identifies around this transition, and uh, we're uh, you know we're the biggest and the most competitive player in that space. Nice. Now, for the people that are listening, you know, just to get an idea of the scope and size of Highland today? I mean, anything that you can share in terms of uh, numbers, maybe number of employees or anything else to give them an idea? Sure, yeah. Uh, so we're a private company, so we haven't, you know, we don't publish financials, but uh, we've got uh, close to 60 people and growing pretty quickly. We, you know, we're adding a uh, couple people a week right now. And those folks are, some of them are, uh, really part of our fleet operations team that actually delivers on the services for our customers. And then um, there's a lot of people that are sort of in sales origination, underwriting and market development roles that really seek to unlock and open new markets, 
do direct selling as well as a ton of sort of indirect selling through uh, local stakeholders and other channels that are, you know, relevant, engaged channels and, uh, you know, transportation at a state level. There's a lot of work at the state level. And so one could sort of look at the business and say, we've got, you know, we're in a little over 20 states and two provinces in Canada today. So we're, we're, we've got, you know, really specific people and plans for how to participate in each of these markets. And they're all a little different. Nice. Now, imagine I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time. And I have the opportunity of bringing you back in time to have a chat with that younger Duncan. That younger Duncan that is thinking about starting a business, you know, before Altenex, maybe maybe right when the, maybe the idea of Altenex was coming into mind, your, your first business. And let's say you were able to sit that younger self down and give him one piece of business advice for launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? I think I would say, don't be afraid to cold call anyone and everyone that you think can be helpful in figuring out what your strategy is and then going after it. I, I try to make a like cold call once a day, even today, because I think it um, is a is a discipline that's hard to learn and it's incredibly powerful. There's people who never answered the phone and won't take a cold call, but there's plenty of people who do. And when you get those people who do on the phone, uh, I've been surprised at how willing people are to sort of have conversations, share their experience. Um, uh, and those turn into business relationships. They turn into people you want to recruit and hire. The more and more that I've forced myself to get out there and be bold at getting in front of the right, the right individuals across all, you know, all aspects of our market, uh, you know, the more that that it's been really fruitful. And I think I would tell, you know, myself 12 years ago, get out there and just pick up the phone. I love it. So for the people that are listening, Duncan, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Send me an email, drop us a note on our website. I'm Duncan at highlandfleets.com. And, you know, we'd, we'd love to hear from folks if uh, they'd like to reach out. Amazing. Well, Duncan, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.